Well, if you would, go ahead and take out your Bibles. Turn with me to the book of Genesis, chapter 22. The book of Genesis, chapter 22. As we continue looking at uh, the story of Abraham and all that God did in his life and its implications for, for you and for me. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 10. Genesis 22, verses 1 through 10. I hope you have your Bibles open so that you can see the Word of God before you and see where this message is coming from. Genesis 22, verses 1 through 10. Let me read those verses for us. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here am I. He said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with, young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. And when they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. There is an an order to the way we are studying this passage. Last week we focused on the test itself. Uh, we, we looked at the author of this test, namely that it is a test that came from God. We saw the nature of this test, that it was a, a test of faith. And we saw the motive of this test, namely that God was doing Abraham and Isaac good. He was loving them in the midst of this test and through this test. This week, our focus is on Abraham's response How did he do when the test came his way? And what can we learn from the way Abraham responded? And then next week, a very special service in which we have the Lord's Supper and baptism. Uh, We'll have a shorter message next week, but it will be a message. It will be a meditation, really, on how this passage points us to Christ and to the cross. So that's sort of our order of how we are studying this passage. This morning, our focus is Abraham's response to the test. What was Abraham's response? It was obedience. Abraham obeyed God. 
What I want to do is make four observations for us concerning the obedience of Abraham. Four observations concerning the obedience of Abraham. And the first aspect of Abraham's obedience that I want us to see is that it was an immediate obedience. An immediate obedience. And I see this in verse 3. Do you see it? Verse 3, So Abraham rose early in the morning. It is likely that this word from God came to Abraham in a vision during the night. And now, early in the morning, he is saddling his donkey, gathering his servants and his son, cutting the wood, and heading out for the mountains of Moriah. Abraham rises and he obeys. It is amazing to me to consider that this passage does not record for us a single word of protest from Abraham. We do not find Abraham objecting. Think think of all the things that Abraham could have said to God when God brought him this command. Think of all the objections Abraham could have made. God, how can you ask me to do this? Haven't you declared that you hate murder? Aren't you the God who said in the days of Noah, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. How can you then come to me and command that I kill my own son? God, you've told me that I will be the father of many nations. You've taught me about leading my family well. Back before the destruction of Sodom, oh God, wasn't it you who showed me what you were about to do and you told me that this was a a reflection of what happens when people do not trust you. you. You showed me this, that I would command my children and all those who would come from them to fear you and to walk in righteousness and justice. Is this what you call being righteous? Is this what you call being just? Father, is this the kind of precedent you want me to set for my family? Must I, the father of the nations, become the monster of all fathers? God, speaking of nations, how can nations even come from me? when it was only by a miracle that you have given me this son, and now you would have me kill him. God, you know that I and Sarah are both beyond childbearing years. You expressly told me that it was through Isaac that my offspring would be named. God, are you unfaithful? God, are you contradicting yourself? God, are you a liar? God, have I been wasting my time all these years in trusting you? God, think about Sarah. Think about my dear wife. How can I return to her? How can I return to her alone without Isaac? How can I answer her questions? How can I look into her face and even begin to explain what I have done to our son? Oh, Father, she will not only turn away from me, but surely she will turn away from you and she will hate you as well. 
Folks, all of these objections and many more could have poured forth from Abraham's lips. He could have argued in prayer with God for days. Abraham could have postponed obeying this command for a long time while he sought to make sense of it, while he sought to figure out what in the world God was doing. But we have nothing like that recorded in this passage. God had spoken. Abraham had clearly heard God's word. The command was confusing. The command was torturous. The command was heartbreaking. But rather than object, Abraham trusted his God, leaned not on his own understanding. He rose up early in the morning and he obeyed. Friends, the more we object to God's commands and waste time arguing with Him rather than trusting Him and obeying Him, the more time we spend wrestling with God, seeking to argue with Him about His commands, the more our hearts are able to harden in opposition to Him. Every moment we put off obedience is a moment that our hearts and minds can come up with more reasons why we shouldn't obey. We are only in the path of faith. We are only in the path of blessing when we are obeying, not objecting. God's Word may not always make sense to us. God's commands may not always make sense to us. But we must trust that our God knows what He is doing. How might this apply to you? How might this apply to to your struggle with some of the commands that God has given you in the Bible? I spent some time this week thinking about what are the commands that I have most often seen Christians wrestle with, struggle with, want to argue with God about? What are the commands that people that I've seen most often, even professing Christians, even real Christians, even myself at times, argue with God and say, God, I see what you're saying. It makes no sense and it doesn't seem very wise. And rather than obeying, we're tempted to spend our time objecting. So I came up with a a top ten list. Now these are not in any particular order, but these are some of the most common commands that God has given us that I think Christians today are tempted to object to rather than trust God and obey. See what you think. 2 Corinthians 6.14 Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Proverbs 23.13-14 Do not withhold discipline from a child. If you strike him with the rod, he will not die. If you strike him with the rod, you will save his soul from Sheol. 1 Corinthians 6, 5-7 through I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between you brothers, but brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? Ephesians 5.22 Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. 
1 Timothy 2.12 I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Isaiah 58.6-7 Is this not the fast I choose? To share your bread with the hungry and to bring the homeless poor into your house? Exodus 28 Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Matthew 18, 15-17 If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him. And if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or more witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Matthew twenty two twenty one. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. That means pay your taxes. You heard Christians try and justify why they cheat on their taxes. James five sixteen. Confess your sins to one another. Maybe you're struggling with one of those commands. Maybe you're struggling with a command that I didn't quote or mention. But maybe there is a command in the Bible that just doesn't make sense to you. It doesn't seem right to you. I have so often heard people try and explain away why the commands about church discipline should not apply to them, why they don't make sense. How often I've heard well-meaning, dear Christian ladies genuinely struggle with uh, the command in Titus that wives be keepers of the home. What, what command is it for you? What, what command in the Bible, that you, you understand it, you, you interpret it right, you, you see what he's saying, but it just it doesn't make sense to you. You want to object rather than trust and obey. What is that for you? And the question is this, will you obey anyway? It, it is okay to struggle with some of God's commands. It is okay if a command does not make full sense to you and and you haven't yet come to the place of, of seeing God's wisdom in it. But if you are in a season of your life in which you are struggling with some command or another that God has given to us, will you still obey? Will you trust that even though it doesn't make sense in your mind, God knows what He's doing? What are we saying? when we refuse to obey a command until it makes sense to us. Who is really the master in that situation? Who is our God in that circumstance? Friends, we are called to trust in the Lord with all our heart and to lean not on our own understanding. Oh, we should want to understand God's commands. We should want to understand why they're wise. We should want to obey them because we've seen by the grace of God why this command is good and why this is right. But when that isn't happening, we should pray like crazy. God, help me understand why you would command me to do this thing. Help me understand why you would tell me to do this. But while I'm waiting for you to answer that prayer, I will step out in faith and obey. I will not put off obedience while I spend time objecting and arguing. Abraham's confidence in God at this point in his life had reached a place where he was willing to trust God though the command made no sense to him. And so he obeyed and he obeyed immediately. 
without objection. Are you with me, church? Second aspect of Abraham's obedience. The second aspect is that it was a persevering obedience. A persevering obedience. The mark of real faith is that it not only trusts God, but it trusts God over the long haul. I see this particularly in verse 4. Do you see verse 4? Namely, those words, on the third day. This tells us that Abraham walked with Isaac and his two servants for three days, carrying the wood and the supplies they would need for the sacrifice. And I can't help but wonder if along the way there were times when Abraham seriously contemplated turning around. As he thought about where he was going, as he thought about his love for his son Isaac, as he thought about what he was going to do, were there not times when he thought about stopping where he was, telling God he would not do this, and going back home? But whatever was going through Abraham's mind, he persevered. He did not turn back. He continued in his obedience. One of the things I've heard several parents in our church tell their children is that it is good for children to obey right away, all the way, and with a happy heart. Well, Abraham obeyed right away, but he also obeyed all the way, right? And I imagine he was praying all the while, God, help my heart to understand what's going on here so I can see wisdom in this. But he didn't just obey immediately. He persevered in his obedience. He didn't start out well only to lose heart halfway through. Let me bring your thoughts again to your own situation. Is there a command of God which you began to obey in earnest at the start, but over time your obedience has waned? Are you failing to persevere in some command of God? Are you failing to persevere in prayer? Are you failing to persevere in your love for a certain difficult person? Are you failing to persevere in in respect and humility towards your boss? Or in memorizing Scripture? Or in supporting the work of missionaries? Is there something that God has commanded of you that at first... For a while, you did. And now, due to neglect or just plain obstinance, your obedience has faded away. Is God calling you to repent and to trust Him again in that area of your life? Can you imagine Abraham crying out to God halfway to the mountains of Moriah? Okay, God, I came halfway. Isn't that enough? Halfway would not have been real obedience. Halfway would not have brought about the blessing that God had planned for Abraham and Isaac at the end of this journey. Going halfway would have been like the plant that started out growing well, but once the sun came out and scorched the plant because its roots did not go deep, it died. It is he who runs to the end that receives the prize. So friends, when the heat is on, when the suffering is real, when the cross you are carrying is heavy, will you obey to the end? Will you persevere? 
third aspect of Abraham's obedience. It was immediate, it was persevering, but third, it was unswerving. It was unswerving. I want us to notice that Abraham went out of his way to keep himself from being distracted from his task. In particular, did you notice that there is no mention of Sarah in our passage? Though we're not told for sure, it it appears that Abraham never went to his wife, did not talk to her about what he was going to do. If she did know of the trip, she almost certainly didn't know of why he was going. Because if Abraham had told his wife, she surely would have tried to talk him out of it. She, She surely would have tried to hinder him. Are you sure it was God talking? Are you sure it wasn't what you ate last night? Are you sure it wasn't a bad dream? Think of all the other things that could be, Abraham. Surely God would not say this. And as Abraham watched his, his dear wife shed tears, he could very easily have been moved in his heart by his love for his wife to disobey God. We see very clearly in verse 5 that Abraham left his two servants at the bottom of the mountain. The two servants did not accompany Abraham and Isaac to the place of sacrifice. And most of the commentators suggest that the reason he did this was because Abraham is now an old man. And these servants were were probably younger and more athletic. They could easily have stopped Abraham from doing what he ought to do had they been there. These men could have overpowered him once they saw Isaac being bound for the sacrifice. Friends, when it comes to the commands of God, when it comes to doing what God has called us to do, there will always be people we can turn to if we want to be talked out of it. Did you hear that? You can always find people, sometimes with ill motives, sometimes people with very good motives, who can talk us out of our obedience if we want to find them. We must take care that our eyes are fixed upon the Word of God first and foremost. And we must not allow anyone or anything to keep us from doing what our God has called us to do. Now please understand, we need to make sure we have the command right. (laughs) We need to make sure that we've properly interpreted what God is calling us to do. And we can certainly seek the counsel of wiser, more mature believers to make sure that our application of the command is correct. But once it is settled in our minds, and it is settled in our consciences, we know God has told us to do something. We must not let anybody, any reasoning, any excuses keep us from doing what God has called us to do. Do we trust Him or not? And that brings us to the fourth and most important aspect of Abraham's obedience. It was a trusting obedience. Why did Abraham obey immediately? Why did Abraham persevere? Why was he willing to obey with an unswerving devotion even when the cost was the life of his son? It was because God had won Abraham's trust. 
Abraham had learned through experience. All these months that we've been studying Abraham's life to this point, we've seen him go through test after test, and sometimes he fell flat on his face, and sometimes he made it through victoriously, but God was teaching him in test after test, you can trust me, you can trust me, you can trust me. And Abraham learned. And so now he's trusting. Let God command what He will. Abraham had come to the place of faith. Friends, this is the goal of the Christian life. To come to the place where we can say to God, God, You command what You will. I am Yours. I will do whatever You say. Because I trust You more than I trust myself. Wherever You would have me go, whoever You would have me be, whatever You would have me do, whatever You would have me say, You lead me, You direct me, You guide me. For You are good and You are wise and You love me more than I love myself. So I trust You. Here is Abraham, walking with his son, his heart undoubtedly filled with agony. And suddenly Isaac turns to his father and says, Here's the fire. Here's the wood. There's the knife. Where's the lamb? How would you have answered that question? I imagine the question just struck Abraham right in the heart. No doubt being moved by the Holy Spirit, Abraham gave the best possible answer. It is the main point of this whole chapter. Namely, God will provide for Himself the Lamb for the burnt offering. There's an intense heaviness that pervades this moment as Abraham and Isaac, father and son, are moving to the place of sacrifice together. Those words that they went both of them together are used in 2 Kings 2 when Elijah and Elisha are walking together for the last time and Elisha knows that Elijah is about to be taken away from him forever. At least in this life. And so there's a kind of solemnity to this moment. There's a kind of of seriousness, even a kind of sadness that pervades this moment as father and son go up the mountain together. And yet... Abraham believes that God will provide. What did Abraham mean when he said God will provide? Did Abraham know that God was going to stop him and that God was going to provide a ram to take the place of Isaac on the altar? Did Abraham know that? No, he didn't. Abraham didn't know what God was going to do to work this out. But he did know that God had told him that nations would come from Isaac and therefore Abraham knew somehow Isaac is going to live. Even if it means that God raises him back from the dead. Friends, Abraham is not lying in verse 5 when he tells his servants that he and the boy will return to them. That was a statement of faith. He really believed it on the authority of God's Word. God had told him nations will come from Isaac. So somehow Isaac was going to live. But he didn't know how and he didn't know what was going to happen. And he knew what he was called to do. Listen very carefully 
to Hebrews 11, verses 17 through 19. Hear these words about Abraham's faith in this moment. Hebrews 11, 17 through 19. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, confirms for us that Abraham believed that somehow, even by means of resurrection, Isaac would return alive. To my knowledge, at Abraham's point in history, there had never been a resurrection in the history of the world. Abraham didn't know of Lazarus. Abraham didn't know of the empty tomb. All of those things were yet to come. And yet, hoping against hope, believing against all that made sense to him, Abraham believed that Isaac would come home with him because God had declared it. He would be the father of nations. It was Abraham's radical faith that made his radical obedience possible. And where there is not radical faith, there will not be radical obedience. And so here he is. Abraham builds his altar. Abraham has built many altars before, but certainly never like this. He lays the wood out in the proper way. And then he binds Isaac. Now God in His providence has chosen to keep from us the conversation that took place when Abraham began to bind Isaac. We don't know how Isaac responded when Abraham began, began to bound him for the sacrifice. But here's what we do know. We do know that Isaac is a young man, an older teenager, or perhaps even in, in 20 or early 20s. And we know that Abraham is an older man, a feebler man. Had Isaac chosen to overpower his father and get away, he almost certainly could have done so. The most reasonable explanation for the binding of Isaac is that Isaac was submitting to what his father was doing. Do you see how Isaac points to Christ? We'll talk more about that next week. Use your imagination. What must have been going through Abraham's heart and mind as he bound his son? What must have been going on in the depths of Abraham's soul as he helped his son into position atop the wood? Can you picture Abraham giving his son a last hug and a last kiss on the cheek? Can you imagine him and Isaac both shedding tears as they looked into one another's eyes for one more moment? And then here's Abraham taking the knife, raising the knife, Matthew Henry says, Be astonished, O heavens, at this. Wonder, O earth. Here is an act of faith and obedience which deserves to be a spectacle to God, angels, and to men. Abraham's darling, Sarah's laughter, the church's hope, 
the heir of promise, now lies ready to bleed and die by his father's own hand, who never shrinks at doing it. Friends, does not Abraham here point us to our God who was willing to give up his own son for our sakes? Do you see the parallels between Abraham and God the Father? Abraham had to make preparations for the sacrifice. He had to get everything ready. He had to make the trip to the mountains of Moriah. So also God worked through history over thousands of years orchestrating every big thing and little thing to bring history to the appointed moment when He would plunge the knife of His wrath against sin into the soul of His Son. Just as Abraham and Isaac climbed the mountain together, you see Isaac carrying the wood on which he would die. Abraham carrying the fire and the knife. Was not God the Father with His Son as His Son went towards the cross. From the day of His birth, through Jesus' childhood, through Jesus' baptism, through His temptation, through His ministry, through His teaching and His miracles, God the Father was always with Jesus. And as Jesus moved closer and closer to the cross, He carried on Him at all times the weight of the reason He had come, which was to die. Throughout His life, Jesus bore on His back the reality that He was to be the head of God's people. That He represented them in everything He said and did. And He would take on Himself the sins of the people for whom He was sacrificed. And every day, as His Father was walking with Him to the cross, as His Father was strengthening Him by the Holy Spirit, moving Him, guiding Him, encouraging Him, loving Him. All the while, His Father was carrying in one hand the fire and the knife. Father and Son walking together to the place of sacrifice. Just as Abraham prepared the altar, placed the wood in order, bound his son for the sacrifice, So God the Father patiently and carefully orchestrated countless events that His Son's death would come about in just the right way. It was God who ordained for Judas to betray Jesus. It was God who allowed the Pharisees and the Sadducees to become hardened against Him. It was God who was working behind the scenes as Satan and his demons exerted power over the hearts of people to bring about the crucifixion. Friends, it was God who ordained and set in order that Christ would die on a cross, that He would wear a crown of thorns, that His friends would all desert Him in fear, that a spear would be plunged into a side, that two thieves would be crucified by Him. Every aspect of the sacrifice carefully planned and prepared by God the Father, who at the same time was full of love and full of grief for His Son. Zechariah 13.7 God the Father says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me. Isaiah 53.10 It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for sin, listen carefully, 
He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Isaiah prophesied it would be the father who would sacrifice the son. It would be the father who would crush the very soul of the son. And yet Isaiah prophesied that when the sacrifice was done, the sacrificial lamb, his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, would see his days prolonged. There would be resurrection. Just as Abraham was willing to sacrifice his son because he believed against all hope that Isaac would somehow be restored to him, so God the Father took his son to the cross and crushed him there for the sakes of sinners, all the while knowing that he would raise him from the dead and exalt him as Lord over all. The path to exaltation was humiliation. The path to eternal life for us was death for Christ. It was only by Jesus dying for God's people that He would become their Lord. What would it mean for Jesus to be head of the church if there was no church? He had to die in order for Him to have the esteemed place as Lord and Master of us who love Him and call His name. It was at the cross that Christ secured His throne over the kingdom of God's people. You see, even as God the Father forsook His Son and poured out His righteous wrath upon His Son, even as God the Father was torturing the very soul of His Son, even then God was loving His Son. For He was bringing Jesus through the cross to the greatest honor He could be given. Jesus was already Lord by right of divinity, but now by the cross, He is Lord as a human being, as the second Adam, as the one who has fulfilled all righteousness, as the one who has fully pleased God, the Holy One of Israel, the head of the church, the refuge for weary souls, all because God was willing to sacrifice Him. Did Jesus die for me? Was it for my sins that he died on the cross? Did he bear the wrath I deserved in my place? Did he take on my condemnation? Did he accomplish the forgiveness of my sins? Am I saved when Jesus died on the cross? Did it accomplish my salvation? Was his offering for me? The Bible's answer is yes, if you believe. If you trust, all who see their need for salvation and lay hold of Christ and His perfect work will be saved. But those who will not come, those who choose instead to stand before God on their own merits, they will be lost. Jesus said He did not come to call the righteous to repentance, but sinners, those who know their need for Him. If you're here this morning... And you think that you are righteous enough to stand before God on your own merits. Christ has nothing to offer you. You're wasting your time here this morning. But if you're here and you know that there is nothing you have to make you right with God, then Christ is able to say to you, I have done everything necessary. Look to me and be saved. Christians, Jesus obeyed His Father. Immediately, 
perseveringly, unswervingly, and in faith. And Abraham did the same. How about you and how about me? Our Savior, the saints in heaven, are calling out to us from the page of the Bible. They are, they are reading us on. They are crying out as we go through tests and trials. They are crying out, trust Him. He's faithful. Learn from our testimony. Learn from our example. He's faithful. Trust Him. They're, they're cheering us on, encouraging us to keep running the race, to keep persevering in faith. And so let us learn from the testimony of Abraham and of Jesus. And let us leave this place this morning with a renewed strength and a more resolved than ever faith to trust God and to obey Him no matter what. Amen? Let's pray.